Hey folks, Cameron here. Welcome to another edition of Tinseltown Thunderdome. Each episode, we pick a genre, director, or theme and have the top movies from that category square off in a deathmatch tournament to see which film emerges victorious. Battles in the Thunderdome are fast, rough, and looking for the kill. We don't have enough time to cover all the fascinating facts, controversies, and mysteries about these movies, but we try to discuss as much as we can. This episode, we toss the best of the video game movies into the Thunderdome. As many of you may already know, two new video game-inspired films, Mortal Kombat and Free Guy, are due to hit theaters in the next couple of months. We're not just tackling adaptations of video games, but also movies where we considered video games to be integral to the plot or some other central aspect of the movie. Allow me the pleasure of introducing you to the two guys who will join me in judging these matchups. We have Matt. Sure. I'm ready to go. And we have Aaron. Thanks, brother. I'm glad to be here. For new listeners, a quick note about this series of grudge matches. We start with the top eight video game movies, rank ordered based on the average of their Rotten Tomatoes percentages and IMDb scores. Matt, can you explain that a bit? Sure. As most of you know, Rotten Tomatoes aggregates critics' reviews to give moviegoers a sense of what critics as a whole think about a film. IMDb, on the other hand, lets its visitors vote on the quality of a movie on a 1 to 10 scale. To avoid biases, we left our ranking system in the hands of critics and general audiences. It's not a perfect system, but one we think is most agreeable. Great. Thanks, Matt. I hope that gives a better sense of our approach. So we use that rank order of the films to seed the movies 1 through 8 and pit them against each other in a March Madness-style tournament, 1v8, 2v7, and so on. In the first round, we take a quick vote and eliminate four movies. After the first round, we'll take a moment to mourn the movies that didn't make it. The victors then move on to the round of four, where we debate the movies as they square off to see which two will move on to the final showdown. The last movie standing is crowned video game movie champion. And since there are three of us, we'll never have a tie. Aaron, can you give us a quick intro of the topic? Virtual worlds that define video games are nearly limitless, unless an evil AI is harnessing your lifeblood in a vast human farm while keeping you docile in a sim-like reality. Whether you are the chosen one or the nerdy one, if you were born sometime after 1972, Video games likely have played at least some role in your life. When Atari was born in Sunnyvale, California, it was all but inevitable that their explosive popularity would lead to movies about video games, and movies based on video games, and movies where video games transpose real life, and you get the picture. We debated where to draw the lines, and you are about to see the high scores. Fire up your console, charge up your controllers, and strap on your haptic suits. Get ready for the Thunderdome. All right, let's get into it. Matt, take us away with the first round. All right, our first matchup is brutal. We have our five seed, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, 2010. In a magically realistic version of Toronto, a young man must defeat his new girlfriend's seven evil exes one by one in order to win her heart. Versus number four, Ralph Breaks the Internet, 2018. Six years after the events of Wreck-It Ralph, 
Ralph and Vanellope, now friends, discover a Wi-Fi router in their arcade, leading them into a new realm of adventure, the internet. Face off. All right, Aaron, who you got? Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, I got Scott Pilgrim as well. Matt, who you got? Scott Pilgrim. I, I think we can all say we're not too surprised by that one. No, I mean, the sequel bump that uh, Ralph Breaks got. Uh, anyway. Number six is Ready Player One, 2018. When the creator of a virtual reality called The Oasis dies, he makes a posthumous challenge to all Oasis users to find his Easter egg, which will give the finder his fortune and control of his world. Versus the third seed, Wreck-It Ralph, 2012. A video game villain wants to be a hero and sets out to fulfill his dream, but his quest wreaks havoc throughout the arcade where he lives. All right, Matt. Who you got? Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, Ralph's Revenge here. Yeah, I'm going to have to go Wreck-It Ralph as well. Oh, you were thinking about that right up until the last second. Well done. I was thinking about it. We'll, we'll get into that. Third matchup, our seven seed, Jumanji. Welcome to the jungle. 2017. Four teenagers are sucked into a magical video game, and the only way they can escape is to work together to finish the game. Versus number two. War Games, 1983. A high school hacker finds a backdoor into a military central computer. When reality is confused with game playing, losing the game risks starting World War III. Okay, I'll go first on this one, and I suspect I'm the outlier on this, but I will go Jumanji. Bueller? Bueller? Definitely War Games. Yes, you are the outlier. Easy for me, War Games. Yeah, not too surprised by that, but we'll get into it. <laughs> we will get into that. A lot of promises being made. Next matchup. All right, we've got Civil War here with this eighth seed, The Matrix Reloaded, 2003. Freedom fighters Neo, Trinity, and Morpheus continue the revolt against the machine army and their systematic forces of repression and exploitation versus The Matrix, 1999, our top seed, a young computer hacker discovers that our world is merely a virtual reality created by intelligent machines to enslave mankind. Now he must join humanity's fight against the machines. Matt, who you got? The Matrix. Yeah, I got the Matrix too. What about you, Aaron? You have this, you, is that Matrix Reloaded or Matrix? <laughs> so, the Matrix. The Matrix. Yes, younger Neo just assassinated older Neo. <laughs> All right. Shall we mourn what didn't make it? Not a lot of mourning here. I don't me. have much to mourn here. I mean, I, I, <laughs> Cameron, I mean, on you. Oh, man. Okay. I, I'll, I'll, I'll start it off. I actually have a lot to mourn here. Let's start with Matrix Reloaded. Why don't you mourn that first? I, I will, actually. Matrix Reloaded has gone up in my book since rewatching it. That means you've gone down in my book. <laughs> I, I, most people would probably say the same. You know, the bar for The Matrix was set so high and I think The Matrix Reloaded definitely did not hit that bar, but it it accomplished a lot and it, it did a lot that I think people take for granted and usually do when they're comparing it to The Matrix, which I don't fault them for it, but it just does a disservice to The Matrix Reloaded. I, I would argue with you, except I think I, I do want to make sure we have time to talk about the one thing I can think of mourning because I don't see any video game 
movies that I wish were in the top four that aren't is I mourn that there haven't been good straight video game adaptations yet. Um, when we ran the numbers on these movies, just again with our simple IMDb Rotten Tomatoes aggregate, um, I mean, sorry, aggregating the aggregators, you know, taking these two averages, the straight adaptations of video games like the, the you know, the old Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, these films, they did not make it anywhere near the top. Um, something like Sonic the Hedgehog comes somewhat close, but there, I just think there hasn't been a great video game straight adaptation yet. And we saw that today with our eight choices. These are all movies about video games, not video game adaptations. Yeah, I, I think um, there's you know maybe hope for something like Uncharted in the future, but you know every time I think there's going to be a great video game adaptation, it ends up being I don't know middle of the road at best. I mean, even something like Tomb Raider that looked like it could be like a female version of Indiana Jones, but with a little bit more kick ass, it just didn't work. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be audience members who consider that a great film, but it wasn't a great film per the critics or even the viewers. I do want to jump in and say that while War Games was an easy victory for me over Jumanji, Jumanji was an excellent video game movie, an excellent video game movie. Yeah. Agreed. It was funny. It was well-crafted. The characters uh, had the right chemistry. It had all the right mix of being uh, a great film. It just got pitted against an even greater film. War Games was so incredible. I agree. Yeah, Jumanji is the quintessential popcorn movie. I think it defines that perfectly. Just so easygoing, doesn't take itself seriously, works so well, and it's just pure entertainment. I mean, they've tried to replicate it. I mean, in addition to having a sequel, I mean, something like Rampage, where you get <laughs> the same star, you get the yeah. same idea, you know. But it, yeah, everything lined up for it. And I think, um, yeah, kudos to, to the entire team that worked on it. I'll mourn one last thing. Wreck-It Ralph made it, and I've almost voted against it, but I actually prefer Ralph Breaks the Internet. I do too. And it's unfortunate that they were seeded the way they were, but that's how it is. I, I like the sequel better. I actually, I like the sequel better than the original as well. Yeah, I, I think it's far superior. I won't mourn too hard though, because I mean, I, I just wasn't going to pick it over Scott Pilgrim. No, no, definitely not. Well, let's get into our first matchup of the final four. Wreck-It Ralph versus War Games. Who wants to take it away? I'll I'll get into it. I disagreed with you guys on Wreck-It Ralph being inferior to Ralph Breaks the Internet. So let me defend Wreck-It Ralph a little bit. I think Wreck-It Ralph was just whimsical enough, just substantive enough, and had a defined target audience that it really captured something about nostalgia that was relevant to today in a way that I thought was pretty hard to pull off. It's this amalgamation of different video games that, it, it, okay, it's it's the Toy Story for video games that targets the the group that graduated Toy Story, right? Like you you've finally made it out of the nursery and into the arcade, and now you get to watch Wreck It Ralph. Except the metaphor you're creating is ironic because Wreck It Ralph is far stupider than Toy Story. So you're not actually graduating as you are digressing to a lower grade. I mean, you just say that you disagree with him completely. I mean, let's be clear for the audience. Oh, I disagree. No, no, I, this is a hot take. I mean, I think, um, so you liked Ralph Breaks the Internet, but you really thought this one was stupid. I like Wreck-It Ralph. I think it's very fun, very entertaining. However, it is, it's very conventional, very simplistic. Whoa, I disagree. It lacks any type of sophistication of what? theme and character arcs. Wow. I said it. I mean, I, I think in terms of Disney films, it is, I think it has more complex themes than something like Big Hero 6. Ooh, 
strongly disagree. Which I which I liked, but I thought was very straightforward, conventional, and predictable. They both are to a certain extent. Did you predict all the twists in this film? Yes. Okay. The cleverness never transcends into sophisticated storytelling. There was never a point where the story and the character development went deep enough to have any sense of catharsis, whereas Toy Story does that at the highest level. So uh, obviously it's not Pixar and it's not Toy Story. It doesn't even come close. And at the end of the day, it had very conventional story arcs and very conventional character arcs. Can I just add that I actually don't disagree with you, Cameron. I think it's very conventional. I think the story arc doesn't break from what you know you might expect from a Disney animated film. And, and I'm making the distinction between Disney animated and Pixar. But I think it hits a home run in pulling together all of this nostalgia and all of these diverse characters into that conventional format or that conventional template and succeeding. That blew me away. I expected all along for this to be something that I could just throw away. And yet it it had a lasting kind of sentimentality. I don't know if that's because John C. Riley is just so good at being Ralph. I mean, there's something to it. And, and I, I think the film accomplishes what it sets out to do. And I actually think because its target audience is more focused than Toy Story, it doesn't necessarily need to do what Toy Story does, which is to hit a home run with parents and hit a home run with kids. A lot of the sophistication of Toy Story is lost on the primary audience, which is the child. But it definitely develops for the adult. But every aspect of Wreck-It Ralph hits for its target audience. And that was an accomplishment to me. Well, I thought what's more, what's not more of an accomplishment, but what also is an accomplishment is my, my four and a half year old son watched it, does not understand any of the nostalgia references. And that whole world and those characters were appealing to him. And he was talking about it for days. Admittedly, he talked about Ralph Breaks the Internet more. Um, that captured him a bit more um, because uh, of, of the story that was in there. Also, I think there's a reason why we why unanimously, unanimously swept Ready Player One. And I think that's that Ready Player One traffics heavily in nostalgia. But the film adaptation doesn't really transcend that. For whatever reason, I don't think Spielberg gets much further than that with that film. Wreck-It Ralph, I had thought that it was just going to be kind of a, a slight nostalgic trip and nothing to write home about or or really even think about. I didn't think my son would be interested in it because there are references to things he doesn't know about. But it was a whole sort of self-contained, interesting world for him. And for me, though it was conventional, it was a conventional story done well with, I think, narrative twists and turns that made it um, engaging. I don't know, maybe because pitting it against something like Ready Player One and other video game films, I think, well, this is a very well done conventional video game film in a sea of failures. As much as I liked Wreck-It Ralph, um, I'm going to give some more breath to War Games. When I rewatched for the first time in probably 25 years and it opened to a pre-Tarantino Michael Madsen, I was wondering whether or not everyone was going to die shortly in a really unpleasant, like grotesque Reservoir Dogs sort of way. But he was a straight-laced military man. He did point a gun at one point, which was impressive. And the movie really never lets up. It is corny and cheesy at, at times. It's 100% wasp. 
there is like this kind of um, Michael J. Fox 80s, like Pleasantville vibe to the whole thing, but it nails it on every level. Everything about it is like at exactly the right pitch at exactly the right, I don't know, like tone and vibe and it just hits all the right notes and it is such a pleasant film to watch. It's Matthew Broderick at his most arrogant and yet probably his best acting. <laughs> like I don't know if it ever gets better than that, but it's very good. Oh, zing, Matthew. What a shot taken at Matthew Broderick. Jeez, Simba, dude. Come on, man. Simba takes the hit. Matt, what's your take on War Games? War Games is an iconic film. In some ways, I think it comes out of nowhere when I was one year old and I did not see it in the theater as an infant, but, uh, I, I love war games. Um, I love the, 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 the tension that Aaron describes. I love the, the quirky corniness. There's, I don't know, just this early eighties vibe, even an, like an ET vibe, kind of just a lot of, it, it evokes a lot of nostalgia for me. And then it has a very simple message, but it's told partially in a tongue in cheek way, but also in a gravely serious way, even though it can be a bit heavy handed as a political essay, I think it's pretty effective. And apparently, uh, even Ronald Reagan watched it and like rethought nuclear deterrence a little bit and was like, well, for some context, I've, I've done a lot of research in presidential archives, did not come across war games being referenced. There's there's another similar film that is forgotten in a TV movie that was referenced. So it's hard to know if I'm you know, reading these, these amateur reviews of war games um, and people say, give this story, I don't know if it's apocryphal or real. It, it's, a, it's a truthy feel to it. And uh it, I, I, you can picture someone who's like, oh, oh, this would be a problem. Like, we shouldn't leave this to, uh, you know, this sort of like uh, mutually assured destruction. I don't know. That's crazy. And you have computers in charge. What? Like, what do we do? We got to rethink that. I wish I'd had this movie to play when I was doing the the North Korea U.S. tabletop exercise version of mutually assured destruction for high school students because boiling it down to tic tac toe is not that bad. Ali Sheedy, uh, as another just reference point, is this prototypical female lead for 80s movies. Every 80s female seemed to look like Ali Sheedy, like Elizabeth Shue. All these, they, they like all look exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. Having just watched Cobra Kai, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. It's not something to celebrate necessarily, but it is definitely a, a, a sign of that, that time in film. One more shout out. John Spencer, pre-West Wing. This movie was full of 80s wingmen. <laughs> like it just a chock full of people's faces that I recognize, but I had to look up. He did a great job. He was he had some of one of the best performances, but he's only on screen for a moment. Okay. I love war games. It has a very special appeal to it that you guys covered very well. It definitely has that Spielberg 80s vibe going back to the future, you know, all, all those movies. However, I have a lot of problems with war games. One, what the hell is going on with Matthew Broderick's teeth? I'm sorry. I know it's it's a low blow to take, but thank God he fixed those teeth. I, I apologize, Matthew Project. You're awesome. I love you. And your teeth greatly improved. To get to the real issues I have with War Games, I actually loved how they set up the movie and they set up the premise. It's actually quite smart and meticulous about its tech. They integrate that pretty well and they make that actually pretty cinematic, which I thought was pretty impressive because a lot of movies do not know how to integrate computers into the show and make it fun to watch. However, that sophistication breaks down at a certain point 
the cleverness and integration of the tech and how a computer versus man and the logistics of how that plays out breaks down after a while. But let me let me put a pin in that for a second. I first want to just take another shot at Matthew Broderick. I don't like how Matthew Broderick is a straight up dick at the beginning of the movie. That's the best part. Yeah, that is what makes it so good. He's he's an early hacker. It's the first instance past 2001 where you've got AI versus humans and it's got to be this snotty kid who's like, you know, too cool for school, literally in this case. He is he is through almost the entire film. I, I got to tell you, that was the most appealing part of the movie to me. The fact that you did not have this person who was a lead character who was, a, who was like hyper appealing. In a Spielberg film, this guy would have been like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, on the side, I find aliens and save them. And I'm actually a really sweet kid. He's an asshole. Yeah. And he almost starts World War III. I mean, let's not forget. And and I think the film's aware of that. He exposes the the weakness, but not out of virtue. It's because he's a total jerk. He's he doesn't and he's not I don't think he's meant to be appealing. Maybe in a certain sense he's appealing. I found him unappe- unappealing. Uh they they highlight that he's a teenager. Like he's got his shirt off and she walks in and he's like quick to put his shirt on, like clean up his room. So like he's clearly insecure, but he's also outwardly a dick so there it's a he's putting it on and the movie knows he's putting it on so it's not unaware of the fact that he's a dick you know it's like the whole that's part of who his character is and he when he breaks down and cries on goose island and is like which is amazing i feel like there's a great beer in there but when he breaks down and cries that it doesn't feel perfectly natural but it feels like a teenager who would cry like they've like been holding up they've been holding up they're holding like oh shit everything's falling apart i gotta cry now and we're gonna kiss awkwardly but it it, like it captured that teenage sentiment in a way i mean that's one of my my notes it's like the teenage like sentiment and conspiring and like kind of a little awkwardness is all present in the movie don't disagree with you in theory but was not executed well i think the stakes of the movie are way misguided. For those of you who don't know, the main premise is this AI gets control of the United States nuclear arsenal and creates a simulation slash game that Matthew Broderick and the United States military at NORAD have to combat to prevent Armageddon. There's moments where the computer has victories, as any villain does throughout a movie. The, the protagonist has setbacks, but we never see those manifested in the film. I can't feel the stakes that are at hand. I can only feel them intellectually through what I know to be nuclear destruction. Well, I think that's part of the point. They're they're not real. You're like, is this going to happen? And if it does happen, everything's just pulverized. I mean, just vaporized. At a certain point, you have to thread the needle to connect what is a simulation into reality so that the audience can connect with the stakes. They threw in a really ham-fisted like driving scene and that's like the biggest action of the movie and i'm not saying it needs to be straight up action i don't need bombs to go off but i need to feel the imminent destruction that this computer is imposing and i never felt that so i think at least the way i gauge it is you wanted either more visual or more human derived emotion that expressed those stakes in a way that made you connect with the film and you didn't feel the film pulled it off and i don't disagree with that i think it's hard to do that. I think it's very hard to have a kind of 64-bit screen of like, you know, rockets going up in the air and landing on major cities and people kind of looking with their eyes wide and like gasping and, you know, the the hard-ass je- 
general chewing on his red man a little bit harder than normal. All of that, uh, by the way, I just, sorry, minor detour. My problems with the film are actually about how much of its datedness is still a little problematic today. The fact that he's chewing red man and it's almost like a uh, presentation of that, what do they, you know what they call it when the product placement kind of thing. And the fact that they're drinking tab and they've like got it perfectly turned to tab. And the fact that the, the joke that's played on the visitors is played on a black woman from Birmingham. Like when the visitors visit NORAD and they're like, all of that was so probably okay at the time, but is pretty problematic on reflection. Anyway, that's, that's, I think a concern. We got to put this to a vote. I will go first. Wreck it, Ralph. Cameron, you know, we're going to get to talk about war games, right? Because it is war games for me and definitely for Matt. (laughs) Matt, speak for yourself. Let me speak for myself. It's war games. Next matchup, we have The Matrix versus The Matrix Reloaded. Who wants to start us off? Matt. Wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Scoot back. Scoot back. Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim. Oh, I know you keep wanting to reload this Matrix, but it ain't happening. I don't want to talk about The Matrix Reloaded. I have no interest. I don't know why I, for some reason, replaced Reloaded with Scott Pilgrim of all movies. Oh my gosh. I apologize, Edgar Wright. The Matrix versus Scott Pilgrim. Take us away, Matt. How about you go first? These are obviously very different, very different films. Scott Pilgrim versus the world I saw for the first time. This movie I found to be a very personal experience. There are all these Easter eggs in the movie, and this is probably actually true for a lot of people watching this. I watched this movie and it very much aligns with things that I've experienced in my life in very specific detail. How many exes did you defeat? No, but this is very specific thing that happened. I was dating someone who changed their hair similarly to the the you know his girlfriend, same colors, and one of her exes actually moved down the block from me. And that ex is the person who recommended my first Edgar Wright movie, which was Shaun of the Dead. He's like, you should see this movie, and he gave me the disc. I, there weren't seven, and the guy's not evil. I think he's he's an okay guy. But anyway. There were no no battle royales, but there are little Easter eggs like that throughout the movie. And I think the movie captured like the aughts pretty well. Like people who were in their 20s in the 2000 to 2010 period, I think can watch that movie. Or I shouldn't, let me, let me rephrase this. Maybe, maybe, maybe like people who are sort of have similar background and, and experience in, a, in like an urban area as like a floating 20 something trying to figure out life at that time. It's very similar. It, I did not see it when it came out. If I saw it when I came out, I might have been very confused. So I'm glad I saw it 10 years later. Sorry, that was a meandering take, but that's sort of what the movie's like. <laughs> I had never seen Scott Pilgrim until we decided to record this podcast. I watched it with pretty low expectations. I thought it was going to be Wright's weakest film. And really was surprised. Very surprised. As, everything that Matt just said, Yes. Also, there's a Tony Hawk scene with Chris Evans. <laughs> the number of faces that you recognize. Marvel heroes. <laughs> yeah, The number of faces that you recognize who are amazing and show up in this film doing weird shit is fantastic. The number of set piece mashup fights that they pull off and like it, it tracks like all the different possible video game 1v1 fights you can possibly have. It's magnificent. 
magnificent. I honestly didn't know what the fuck was going on at the beginning. I was like, what is happening here? Because it sort of starts out as any other film that's a little offbeat. And then suddenly video game stuff starts happening. And I, how did I not know this for all these years? Like I had no idea that this had all these like embedded components. It's musical. The music is good. It's like that kind of grungy aughts type music. Beck wrote 30 songs for that. It was so good on so many levels. The, the gay guy that looks like Harry Potter that he, he like sleeps with at their apartment. Oh, you haven't seen, you haven't seen succession then. (laughs) Oh, Macaulay Coughlin's little brother. Oh, thank you. They're perfect. Thank you. I knew I recognized that face. I knew I recognized the face. The whole thing was just brilliant. By the way, video game movies are so full of Easter eggs. That is absolutely right. This movie is a cluster of Easter eggs and they all matter and they're all good. Yeah, I agree. This is a great movie. The only thing I, I don't really have much more to say about Scott Pilgrim versus the world, except that the one thing I do disagree with you, Aaron, is I do think this is actually Edgar Wright's weakest film, but oh, I think what? Edgar Wright is amazing. So his weakest film is amazing. I think it's, be- I think it's better than, better than Baby Driver. Me too. I also think it's probably better than The World's End. Oh no. I think this is a better version of Baby Driver in many ways. Baby Driver structured in a similar way. Some, some, some would say. I'm saying. I agree with you guys on everything you've said about Scott Pilgrim. I'll just add that I think Edgar Wright does what he does best, and that is subverts genre, subverts stereotypes, subverts cliches, is just completely subversive in every sense of the word. And that is my favorite part about him as a writer-director and my favorite part about Scott Pilgrim. Now let's pivot over to The Matrix. How does this compare to Scott Pilgrim versus the world? I mean, I think The Matrix is pathbreaking. I mean, it, it so it spawns so many different franchises that weren't The Matrix. Um, and and just, I don't know, a whole way of thinking for a lot of people. I found The Matrix less spectacular this second watch. It was, I, I remembered it being this visual spectacle where there was like seamless visual effects with like this uh, live action take. It didn't feel that way this second go around. And I had some trouble with the way we were thrust into the story with zero background into what Neo was all about. It was just like, we're to assume Neo is this really interesting character and he's been tracking this matrix like thing but then we're just like thrust into it and i know that typically that gets the movie jump started but i felt unsettled by that on this second go around i'm like what makes this guy tick and i realized it's keanu reeves nothing makes him tick i was gonna i was gonna say i would be unsettled if i saw keanu reeves movie where there was given a deep backstory in the first 10 minutes but I actually see what you're saying. I thought the same thing, but just not to the degree that I think it affected you. It is a bit out of nowhere, but it's asking us to take that leap with the movie. And I took the leap. He took the red pill. (laughs) I took the red pill. And where it sort of compensated for that leap, it rewarded us with the immaculate world building that is the first act, essentially, that sets up the entire trilogy. Even though... A character like Neo is paper thin. Characters like Morpheus and especially Agent Smith is just a, such a well done villain. Hugo Weaving, incredible. Yeah, and with, with the monologue he has, I know maybe maybe it's I don't know maybe maybe 
maybe it's not as deep as it seemed to me when I watched it as a teenager, but it it's like, oh, this is this is the stock villain, and suddenly he's like, no, I'm I'm actually in revolt right now. <laughs> like I'm not playing my role. I am I am against my role. I hate this. Well, it pulls off all of its ambition. It doesn't it doesn't fail at all. I mean, any limitations in the visual aesthetic of the film are a byproduct of it being made in 1999, not a byproduct of poor filmmaking. The music is as incredible as the film is ambitious. It's like perfect throughout. It's the they're just the right kind of music for the kind of story it's telling. Even Rage at the very end to yeah. close out the film is just perfect. I should say Rage Against the Machine fully there because it's important to this film and but you know the movie also doesn't shy away from posing extremely deep philosophical questions not answering them and yet leaving you feeling like you got a little closer to what the answer might be which is all that a film should do right because if you don't have the answer don't pretend to have the answer it's not the metachlorians it's something else right like don't don't make this something that it isn't. Let it stand on on its ambition. That's what it does. It stands on its ambition, which is why I don't like any of the sequels. But anyway, um, <laughs> but yes, it's so good. It, it's it's and and the the scene where Neo jumps into the body of Agent Smith that was a pretty powerful scene for me because it it embodied this like this idea of. You, you have to like get within your enemy to defeat it. Like you have to really get within your enemy to defeat your enemy. There, I don't know. There was like a layer to it that would, that, that I hadn't seen on my first go around that kind of hit me this go around of like, there's a connection between Neo and agent Smith and it goes deep. It's like the machine is not necessarily evil. You still have that space of like, I'm not sure, which is also probably a problem I have with the Matrix of like, are we are we averse to this machine? That is one area where the Matrix, I get a little bit troubled is with the Matrix. I mean, the, the scene where all the humans are sitting in the capsules is so much like a chicken coop that it's frightening, right? It's so much like what we're doing to animals anyway, that you're like, well, is it that bad? Like they're superior to us. They've plopped us in a little farm. And they're harvesting us. So it asks like questions that it doesn't even know it's asking, I think, which is kind of fascinating. That's a hot take. Unfortunately, we're pressed for time. We got to vote on it. The Matrix versus Scott Pilgrim. I will go first and I will say The Matrix. Matt, who you got? Reeves against the machine. That's that's The Matrix. Aaron? Yeah, I, I have to go with The Matrix. Okay, wow. That's I'm actually pretty surprised by that. So now we have our final matchup. The Matrix versus War Games. War Games, I apologize. The Matrix is a vastly superior movie. I want this to be a matchup for me, but it's not. I said this in our first episode about James Bond and why I loved From Russia With Love, because From Russia With Love was one of the smallest James Bond films. The Matrix, compared to Reloaded and Revolutions, is so contained and has such low stakes at certain points. And I loved it. I was eating it all up. It's no contest for me. I mean, The Matrix blows war games away. I'm comfortable kind of leaving it at that. Unlike the Wachowskis not walking away from their perfectly wrapped, self-contained film, The Matrix. For me, the showdown was Scott Pilgrim versus the world versus The Matrix. And uh, I didn't want to say it then because I don't want people to turn off the podcast. But it's the Matrix for me. I mean, I, I guess it, I don't know if that's my vote or not, but it's just 
I don't have much else to say on this unless Aaron stirs something up, but I, I'm fine if he doesn't. Let me just continue to revel in the Matrix's superiority. It poses some great questions. It poses questions about fate. It poses questions about whether life is better real or in the Matrix. And the Matrix, you know, just sort of take it as virtual versus real life or imagined lives versus real life because the real life in the Matrix sucks. Or sorry, the real life in the film, The Matrix, is an unpleasant place. It's not really very attractive. Um, but it's that agency that seems to drive it, right? But it also has some weaknesses that I want to point out because if we don't address some of those weaknesses, we don't see where the Wachowskis uh, run afoul of everything that was beautiful about their first film in this trilogy, which will be a quadrology or quadrilogy, whatever you call yeah. it at some point. What is the AI's purpose? What is it hoping to accomplish? Where do we get motive for the AI? It's never expressed at all. I'm not one to need to overdo my suspension of disbelief. That doesn't bother me most of the time. But this movie is so centrally focused on motivations for humans, and yet it utterly disregards AI and what its purpose is. And it also, I mean, this is less important, but why are humans such an excellent source of energy? Why not other animals or other creatures on the planet? Like we're the perfect energy efficient um, organic species to put into the capsule. Like, there's just some kind of like, you just scratch a little bit and you're like, oh, okay, this is a gimmick and I need to play in this gimmick. But that would be fine if it didn't construct itself in such a way that suggests that it was hyper intellectual and hyper sophisticated. And yet I find a lot of those weaknesses is very close to the surface. So you really have to live in its world that it portrays as being very sophisticated. And then I have a real problem with the Jesus elements of Neo. I found those like depressing and like this is a like semi-scientific film. And then it starts trying to wade into this like love conquers all. However, there's no religious underpinning for it. So it's like a there's a humanistic love conquers all element. So if Neo and Trinity can just find find this cosmic love he can come back from the dead I, I just I had a lot of issues with all of these like, heavy handed because Neo is definitely an anagram for one and he is the one and it's like she is three he is one and it's like but actually there's no supernatural underpinning but we're using all this Trinitarian language right I mean it, the, the city is Zion I mean the, the whole yeah, thing is I, just well, like I think a, that's that's audience bait but anyway well I just it, it uh, that bothered me because it's this kind of maybe Maybe, maybe I'm missing the point, but it felt like there was supposed to be a humanistic take, hmm. but yet the humanistic take is all shrouded in this religious construct. And that really undermined what I thought was trying to be done. But then it started to look like human exceptionalism. And I, and then this like love thing and this like some kind of like, where is that power? It, that, that just, it, it broke down for me at that point. Okay, wait, I, I, I agree with you and I disagree with you. I first off, I think you have an aversion to to movies taking the path of the one and the chosen one. I don't have that aversion. I, oh, well, I, I maybe, just want you to I want you to 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 own what it is you're trying to accomplish, not not bait and switch me. I felt I very baited bait and switched. I don't think I, I think the trilogy is even more bait and switched because yeah. in Reloaded you have the humanistic take, and then in Revolutions you have like the full on like uh, apocalypse savior take 
where they take it out and he is actually has superpowers outside of the matrix. And so this is where I disagree with you guys. I mean, where I agree with you guys, but I also disagree. I realize that the thing that reloaded and revolutions lacks entirely. It is non-existent is the juxtaposition between the matrix and the real world and the motivations of the villains in each film. So in the matrix, the first matrix, we have the Joe, uh, what's his name? Joe Pan. Cypher character. Yeah. The cypher character. Also, also a memento with, with Trinity in the re in the rehash. His character was a great addition to the matrix and, and a character like that was sorely missing from the, the subsequent two movies where we got to see something other than just Neo fighting, you know, good versus evil. We got to see a character who was conflicted between what he was doing yeah. and why. I also disagree or well, I agree that we don't know the motivation of, you know, the machines, right? We never really get a sense of their purpose and what they're trying to accomplish. However, I think the Wachowskis cleverly add Agent Smith and they separate him from the Matrix. That is key. I think that's the key. Even then, even then, you don't know what motivates Agent Smith. All you know is he doesn't like the human stink. Like I, that line about that's the actually the amazing. beauty of it to me. Yeah, that's the I, beauty. I love that. Exactly. Well, I, I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's cute to say that it's, um, that's the beauty. I think it's a weakness. I think it could be a, uh, a strength if the Matrix didn't have such a heavy-handed approach to its anti-establishmentarianism, to its idea that there is this like, I'm going to create you a world. I'm going to show you a world with what is it? I'm going to show you a world with no boundaries, with no rules. It's like, what world is that? Is there, has there been a world like that? There seems like there's boundaries and rules in your world. You just have different boundaries and rules and you prefer your boundaries and rules over those boundaries and rules. Like it's the whole thing is like built on this kind of libertarian progressive philosophy that can't exist in an actual human world. And yet Agent Smith is just pissed because he has to be on this mission to get rid of humans. And he's so sick and tired of it. And he just like to progress to some other level in the AI that nobody has a fucking clue what it is. Where is Agent Smith going if he's not hunting down Neo? Is he headed to the blissful heaven that is AI's heaven? Like, well, they, I mean, that, But that's it for me. People are always trying to figure out what they don't he's know. He's not a people. And he's trying to figure out what he doesn't know. It doesn't matter. He's But he's not he, trying to figure anything out. He just wants to get away from being the agent that has to deal with no, humans. No, he is no, not see, trying to figure anything out. I disagree out. with that. Yes, of course he's trying to get away. That's not his only goal. What is his other goal? Well, you don't know. He wants to find out what he doesn't know, which is a, a perfect metaphor, I think, for what, what humans are doing every day. We want to know the purpose of life, and he doesn't know his purpose. These problems also I do I think you're blending Reloaded with Matrix. Because yes, in Reloaded, Agent Smith absolutely expresses a desire to have some more agency and more understanding what's going on. But in The Matrix, I see no indication of him trying to do anything that is other than escaping his role as this deflector of these humans who have gotten outside of the matrix. I'm not sure with whom I align here and I'm having a little trouble tracking the dis disagreement exactly, but I do catch a vibe where you have like a disgruntled colonial boss 
who's dispatched to a place to rule people that he despises. And all he wants to do is get promoted or move somewhere else. And I actually, I don't mind that that's the scope of what's depicted because it's something that has happened throughout human history um, as well. And I don't know. I think it's sort of an interesting wrinkle, but I don't know. I don't know if that's with Cameron or Aaron. I don't no, really I think know. that's absolutely right. I think your description is absolutely right, Matt. I just don't think it indicates any desire to learn more. It is, it's in fact the exact antithesis of that. And and what's missing for me is that the matrix seems to be motivated by something. And yet we don't really know what that is. It's so clear in the Terminator what the goal of the AI is. It's so clear in 2001 what the goal of the AI is. There is a very clear explanation of what has malfunctioned to cause this state of being. We I have no understanding. Extraction. I think it's just an extraction of energy. It's very <laughs> I know, but, but, but that's not explained. That is not explained. What is well, explained is that they are extracting energy. It is not explained how that became the consequence of this AI's development. There's no, there no, there's no point at which they say, "Hey, let me explain why this world has devolved into this post-apocalyptic horror field where humans are in cubicles being sucked of their energy." I think it's because people are asking questions like this that they came up with these second and third movies that didn't answer the questions and also sort of tarnish the whole thing anyway. I mean, I guess, but that sort of suggests that like uh, you can't, I mean, Terminator to me is a far superior film to The Matrix. And and it does answer that question. It's very clear. We know exactly why the AI yeah. is doing what it's doing. And it's not less interesting because we know that the AI has responded to an action. I agree that both the first two Terminators are far superior to this. And I think this genre as a whole is one that I, 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 don't think is amazing, but I've enjoyed discussing it. This has quickly devolved into a Matrix review podcast. I apologize, everyone. War Games has been <laughs> slided big time. I will just say I... War I, Games I, should I, be happy to be in the number two spot. <laughs> yeah. I, I like when movies don't always spell things out for you and leave things up to conversation and leave things up to the audience to bring about their own thoughts. But we have to technically put this to a vote. I'll go first. The Matrix. The Matrix. I mean, the easy for easy for me. The Matrix. I think The Matrix wins, but I do think War Games probably accomplishes what it set out to accomplish better than The Matrix. So there's my defense for the war, for War Games. Wow. So even well, though we reopening the Thunderdome, I, I, I disagree. But I'm not. I'm not going to engage. I, I I choose not to engage. No, 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 no. Not reopening. All I'm saying is my my explanation is this: The Matrix had a thousand times more ambition and succeeded at like, you know, 999 or 998. War Games ambition was like 100 and it, it succeeded completely. So, you know, it, the score, the raw score is higher for The Matrix. It's just a more ambitious film all over. But War Games to me hit it out of the park for its very low ambition. All right, folks, there you have it. <laughs> the Matrix is the video game Thunderdome champion. I will say that I am actually pretty surprised. I expected the two of you to keep Scott Pilgrim going and to keep War Games going. That I thought was going to be my championship. And I thought Scott Pilgrim was going to take it. Uh, so you guys surprised me. There you have it, folks. The Matrix is the video game Thunderdome champion. Mortal Kombat and Free Guy come out soon, and we're excited to see how they compare with the other video game movies. Next episode will be 21st Century Live Action Musicals, Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical In the Heights, directed by John Chu of Crazy Rich Asians, drops on HBO Max and in theaters June 11th. And Steven Spielberg's adaptation of West Side Story is slated for release December 10th. 
it's shaping up to be a big year for live action musicals. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me on this video game Thunderdome. Yeah, man. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. I'm glad we made it out with an extra life. Our theme song is by David Huck. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Tinseltown Thunderdome. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find your podcasts. Make sure to like and subscribe and leave a review to let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.